or for the next few weeks, and I, I think leading up to Christmas or so, I'm going to preach a series that we've titled The Gospel in Genesis. So I'm not going to preach through the book of Genesis. We'll, we'll cover something like um, from the Garden of Eden and Genesis 1 and creation, that is, through to, uh, to Abraham. Thereabouts that should lead us to about Christmas. Um, but in all that time then, we, 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 we hopefully will have... Um, seeing how, yeah, the, the, the gospel is also in, in Genesis. I, I wonder if, if that heading presented any confusion for you, if maybe you thought the gospel was something later on in the latter half of the Bible, your New Testament. And so, and what, what, one crucial thing we want to say is, is no, the entirety of the Bible is about the gospel because the entirety of the Bible is about, the, about, about Jesus Christ. So um, we could... We, we can be in the gospel, or we should be in the gospel when we're reading Genesis. You could say the same thing, really, for um, any book of the Bible. So we could do the series, you know, um, 66 times easily, the gospel in, in Genesis, the gospel in Exodus, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we would not be, um, there'd be no wrong in, in doing so. But we're, we're in Genesis. Um, and uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Uh, you may have seen that we have titled the sermon, Create a King. So I'll, 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 I'll preach from Genesis 1 and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Um, but before I uh, introduce, let me introduce actually the sermon this morning by, by introducing the series itself. So the things I, I'm about to say are, are true for Genesis chapter 1 as they are for uh, the entirety of, of, of Genesis and, and its 50-something chapters. Um, I think it was A.W. Pink, famous English author, who said that uh, Genesis contained all the major doctrines of the Bible in seed form. So it was like the seedbed for uh, all of the Bible's fundamental truths. And I think uh, Pink is onto something there. Um, the book of Genesis lays the foundation for our doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the fall, and redemption, and our justification, and our sanctification, and our resurrection, and glorification spiritual warfare, what have you. You find all these things actually somewhere uh, laid down in Genesis. Genesis is basic to these truths. Um, and, and rightly so, right, in, in this book of firsts, right, both our, our English title of the book as well as the Hebrew title all reflect the idea that this is a book of, of beginnings so that the Hebrew title is literally Beginnings, because um, the Hebrew, Hebrew the Hebrew Bible takes the title for its books from the first line, and of course, the first line, or the first line of of, of Genesis, um, is beginning, right in the beginning. Um, uh, and same thing with our, our our title, which we we get from the Latin translation of the Bible. Genesis is a book of beginnings. We're, we're dealing with the first and. Um, but, but right from the first, you see, right from the, the first book, if you want, of the Bible, right from the, the Bible's testimony of its own origins, you, you, you should expect to see uh, the consistency of God's truth. That's why it's an amazing thing that we can say, we can call our series The Gospel in Genesis. Uh, we, we, we can basically say that even though in time, Jesus Christ had not arrived, of course. You know, you, we start to read about Jesus Christ only 2,000 year, years ago, and the apostles witnessed to that. But in a true sense, Moses is also 
and, and whether Moses, this, the author of Genesis, is, is as aware of it as, and he's not as aware of it, we know, as, as say, a Paul or a Matthew is, but Moses is writing about Jesus Christ. His book is about the Lord Jesus, and that's why we can title it the Gospel uh, in, in Genesis. And, and, and I would just say just, just a few things then about, about, about this to, to, to kind of um, to hold you for, for these next few weeks. Things that, 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 that I think Genesis uh, emphasizes for us. Firstly, just the, the ancientness of God's word. Um, this, is, this is a book. Genesis, it, it reeks of being ancient. And that's not just, I, I, that's even as far as textual criticism is concerned. So it tells us about ancient civilizations and the testimony of the book itself allows us to know this, this is a book that was written in, in first civilizations. But beyond that, it's the fact that the book is, is wanting to tell you the story, say, for example, of the creation of the world. It, it's going all the way back to the beginning. And uh, when we, during this lockdown period, earlier in the lockdown, we, we, we have, uh, we sing on Sunday evenings. We're going to do so this evening as well, I should have said. But we sing on Sunday evenings. One of the songs that we sang more recently, it's a, it's a, it's a newer song, was a song called Ancient, uh, Ancient Words. Uh, it was a, it's a contemporary uh, gospel song, a Christian song. And, and uh, those words always struck me, the words of the hook, which basically say, ancient words, ever true, changing me, changing you. Uh, I was always caught up by those words because they, they kind of testify to one of the very reasons why Christians believe the Bible, why we gather, because God's truth has stood the test of time. These are ancient words. These are words you can depend on. Preach a sermon, I think it was this year, I'm not sure, might have been last year, on, uh, from, from 2 Corinthians, and um, Paul, Paul reminding us that the, the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. It's preaching about the meaning of amen in the Bible and how it... One of the things it tells the faithful is that we have those things that we can really cling to. We, we, we get those times, don't we? And I imagine this is a time when we see the brevity of life. When we see how many things we, we really rejoicing are temporary. They're fading away. You get that. You get that. I imagine. I don't know. But you get that when you're, when you're getting really old and... You're coming to the close of your life. You, you get that if you were to be told that you're diagnosed with a, a life-threatening illness and doctors don't think you have long to live. The brevity of life. What can I hold on to? At that point, I can't hold on to even my friends because their memories must soon leave me. I can't hold on to my wealth. Certainly not. These are words we can hold on to. Come what may. Genesis reminds us of that. God's truth has stood the test of time. And, and following on from that is what you're going to see is the, the kind of applicability of God's word to our current situation. You're reading this old book, right? And someone is going to want to say, well, this is why I don't buy into Christianity. People coming together under this ancient, primitive book. It's, it's not relevant. Absolutely wrong. Christians are not a bunch of uh, fools. Okay, you have some. And you, in every, every area in life, you have some. You have weird people. You have strange people. But for the most part, it's not like Christians are 
naive and they don't think through things. We believe God's word, all, well, because God, the Bible claims to be God's word, yes, and the Spirit testifies to us that it's God's word, but we also believe it because we see how clearly it reads today. Nothing new under the sun. Every action is present in the Bible. That's why we believe God's word. It's consistent. It doesn't matter how seasons change. It doesn't matter what generation we are in. Z, X, Y, B, millennials, doesn't matter. The, the, the word of God is consistently applicable to us. You see that all the, when you read a book like Genesis, far back. This is before Roman uh, Roman civilization. This is before there was any Greek empire. This is before Babylonian empires. And we read this and we see how the word of God is still speaking so clearly, so accurately to our day, to now. How it reveals the living God and reveals man as well who he is. I want you to bear that in mind. As we go through this, you just see that. You see it every single time. This, this is relevant for me now, for today. This is not ancient. This is not primitive. This is not obsolete. This is absolutely re- more relevant than anything else I could be hearing today. But also how this book is about Jesus Christ. That's why, by the way, Genesis will always be current. Because these words here were inspired by the spirit of Jesus Christ. And from Adam all the way to the last child that was born today, we all need Jesus Christ. And because this book is about him, it's always relevant. Because it's telling us about him. And brothers and sisters, that's what we must do, right? We must open Genesis and see how it's telling us about Jesus Christ. We mustn't make the mistake that sometimes even Christians make. Say, for example, and we take Genesis chapter 1 and treat it as though it was there to be some kind of textbook for how you understand the age of the earth, some textbook uh, for how you answer varying questions that science wants to pose. That's not the concern here. This, the book is not, uh, it's not a textbook. Genesis 1 is not getting into the particulars and details of some of the things that we wanted to get into. It's just not doing that. It's speaking, if you want, theologically. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't have things to say to science. Neither is it to say that I think science contradicts the Bible. That's not the case. What I'm saying is that we must not look for answers in Genesis chapter 1 to questions that Moses is not even considering, right? We must appreciate Moses' purpose here. What does he have to say? And Moses, ultimately, in Genesis as a book, and especially in Genesis 1, wants to speak to you about God. You can find out things about the stars from astronomers, right? You can find find out about rocks from these geologists, But only here can you learn about God. And that is what is most crucial. It's what is most important. So let's turn our attention to Genesis and and chapter 1 this morning. As as, as Genesis begins, it's the most appropriate appropriate, um, 
introduction to the Bible you can imagine. It's not just the, the perfect introduction to the book of Genesis. It's not, not just the perfect introduction to those first five books of the Bible known uh, as the Torah, which were essentially to be, all, to be read as one whole story. But it's the perfect introduction to the Bible. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was God. The point is to say that God is before the beginning, or God is the beginning. God has no beginning. By the way, you know the Bible says the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we can say quite confidently, Genesis is speaking about Jesus. But in the beginning, there was God. And you have to appreciate that Moses is writing this book for the benefit, perhaps, of these Israelites who are in the wilderness, trying to understand their history, trying to understand how they're, where they are today. They know that they, belong, they come from, uh, they can trace their lineage back to, 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 to the 12 sons of Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham. And uh, Moses wants to show them the importance of that. It goes all the way back to the living God. It goes all the way back to the living God. And Moses is writing for the benefits of these, the benefit of these Israelites. And he's saying to them, by opening his book this way, what is most important for you is the knowledge of your God. It's the interesting thing of how Genesis 1 operates. Yes, it's talking about creation, but fundamentally, it's talking about the creator. In fact, the reason why creation is relevant in this chapter is because how he tells us about the one who creates. This is a chapter for you to learn about God, not to simply be fixated with the wonderful creation. It is. But creation wants to do one thing. Creation wants you to turn your attention to the one who made it. You can tell that, by the way, Genesis 1 to 2 verses 4 is framed, right? It starts off with God creating in the beginning the heaven and the earth and closes with God resting. So that at both, if you want, bookends, if you like, our attention is to be on God, his work, his rest. What is God's rest? He's taking stock of his work. He's rejoicing in the perfection of his nature. God's own loud declaration to the world that we were made for his glory. And we are to pursue him. Genesis is calling that. He's saying, come and look at your creator. Come and know him. Come and have fellowship with him. This is what matters the most. This is the God who made everything. And who made everything that his glory may be seen in the world. And so Genesis 1 does that for us. He does that for Israel. He's doing that for us. He tells us to behold our God. Look at your God. You were made for him. Creation was made for him. Whether troubled or untroubled creation, creation before the fall, as we read in Genesis, the book of Genesis constantly wants to tell us that everything that God made was good. That creation was made for God. Even creation that has gone awry, even creation that has rebelled against his God, Genesis wants to speak to and say, come back. You were made for him. You weren't made to indulge in the gifts he gave. You were made to draw near to the giver. And so we come then to see this. And, and, and I want to say two things, just two things that uh, Moses tells us about God in Genesis chapter 1 here. Um, and it's actually in the title of the sermon, I'll create a king. I want to say that Moses presents to Israel 
your creator. This is what your creator is. This is who your creator is. And, it's, and one thing to say there is there's, there's also actually a, a countercultural sort of um, perspective that Genesis has. Most commentators recognize that. You see, there were, in Moses' day, there would have been many competing rival um, creation myths. So attempt to explain, explain how we got here. By the way, this is not something that belongs to the, uh, just the, 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 the perusal of ancient man. Even folks today are constantly asking how we came about. What does, why are we here? the meaning and purpose behind our being here. And we may, we may think that our suggestions are far more sophisticated than an ancient Near Eastern uh, book of myths, as it were. Probably not, probably not more sophisticated. Probably usually when you, when you tease it out, they're probably usually just as ridiculous as some of the other things that were being said back then. And what Moses does in Genesis is he presents a, he presents the, the biblical view of of the um, of creation, but not simply to add it to the series of myths that exist. He presents it as a repudiation, as a rejection of the idolatrous myths that existed. So Israel are being told that very often to believe God is a countercultural thing. To believe God will will bring you into tension with your surrounding culture. The same thing is true today. As we affirm what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about man, it's going to bring us into tension with our world. So there's that in 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 Genesis. So 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 Moses tells them, "Your Creator." Now, it may be that there's so many other cultures who are talking about Creator, but they're not talking about the same one. These are idols that we must tear down. These are idols that you must reject. Behold your God. This is what it means for God to be creator. And the second thing is what it means for God to be sovereign. I think those are two marked things, that market things that are stressed in, in Genesis 1, is God as creator and God as sovereign. So sermon's been called uh, creator king. God as creator, God as king. The, the God you see in Genesis is the one who creates everything but remains uncreated. And the God you see in Genesis is the one who is truly sovereign. He's in control over everything. He is, he, he is determined the beginning and the end. Now, those two things are not mutually exclusive. In the Bible's viewing of things, for God to be creator is for him to be sovereign. For God to be sovereign and king is for him to be creator. They're not mutually exclusive, but we can stress some of the uh, unique perspectives of both those ideas. So firstly, then, I say that Moses says to Israel, behold our God who is the creator. And uh, what I want to do is appreciate what Moses says here, but remind you that there's a fullness to the story. And as it were, Moses only has the beginnings. And that story continues to unfold. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've we've seen that story unfold fully. And so unless we speak of the story fully, we're not speaking of the story truly. Right? And so, yes, we, we realize that Moses, he begins the story, and, and so there's some things he cannot say, but we must apply this benefit we have of perfect hindsight through the scriptures. What does it mean then for you to behold your creator in Genesis and chapter 1? In, in, in this book of Genesis, we can't go through the whole chapter verse by verse or anything. But let me draw your attention to one interesting thing about Genesis as it affirms that this God is creator, that this is the God that made everything. Well, I mean, one thing, for, for instance, is in Moses' idea, he wants to distinguish 
the creator from the creature. You see, the, the, the myths that surrounded Moses' time, when, when Moses is writing this book, the, the mythical um, explanations for the uh, beginning of the earth usually were the kind of myths that, make, that they conflated those things. Very often the gods were just like the creatures. They were erratic. They died. They, they, they made deals with human beings. They, it was very hard to separate them. Okay, they had a bit more power, but you couldn't separate them from creaturely beings. Moses' God is the God who makes everything. Moses separates the created from the uncreated. This is our God, nothing before him. Nothing has made him. He is not the same as his creation. And so we tell our world today, you can't simply find God by embracing the universe. You can't find God by standing by the ocean and being taken up by his vastness to some concept of immensity and greatness. That will not do because God is not his creatures. As great as his creation is, God is not his creation. And the last thing I want to do is dissuade anyone from appreciating creation. What I'm saying is we must avoid the error that makes God equal to his creation. You must avoid the error that says because you love creation, you love the creator. You must avoid the error that says standing in awe of the creation means that you stand in awe of the creator. It doesn't necessarily do so. Someone says, you know, standing on the heights of those mountains and looking at the world, I was in awe of this. And I said, there must be something up there. Not quite. You should be saying this, if creation can fill me with so much awe, how awesome is the God who so freely spoke it into being? It's not the kind of thing you can be vague about. You must then know him. You must bow to him. And his creation is speaking. It's opening its mouth. It's voicing itself so God can be found. Now, there's this recurring formula in Genesis. So we, can't read, we don't read through the verses, but you can see that very often the way Moses speaks about God is he, he makes a comment. When it comes to creation, he makes a comment about how um, he announces that God is about to speak. Crucially for Moses, this God is a speaking God. He speaks. That, that does two things. That means he has power because he creates just by speaking. He doesn't, have to, um, he doesn't have to labor for it. He doesn't have to bargain for it. The gods of the mythical, uh, of, the, of, these, of, the, of the other nations surrounding Moses at the time, their, their, their myths suggested that their gods were bargainers, debating with others. No, this guy doesn't need to do that. He speaks creation into being. So it's his power, but it's also the fact then that he can be known. He can be sought after. We can meet him. He can speak. He can reveal himself. He's a revealing God. He's a speaking God. So there's, there's that. There's the fact that God speaks. And his voice is a command. God said, let there be. And his voice has power. Let there be light. And there was light. There's also the fact that he approves of what he does. Very often, God looked at his light. He looks at this stuff. And it was good. He's, he does all that he does for his own pleasure. And there's also, at different points in Genesis 1, the blessing of God. He blesses the birds of the air. He blesses man and woman. He, he's a God who blesses. All these things Moses tells us about the creator God. And so Genesis 1 begins to spring up like, uh, like poetry. 
in fact, it's very hard to distinguish what is, 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 it, is, it, is it a poetic book? Like, is Genesis 1 poetry like Psalm 104, which I read early on, or is it just prose? Is it just telling a story? Well, it's hard to really separate these two things because there's a lot of poetry here. But one thing I noticed about the scriptures is very often when the Bible speaks about God creating, it's poetic. There's a lot of poetry there. Even I read Colossians 1 early on. And once Colossians 1, so you, initially... Paul is speaking freely and teaching Colossians about the way of Jesus Christ. Once he begins to speak about the creating God, he just bursts into something that almost sounds like a hymn. Poetic. Why is that? I think there's maybe two things. I think one is that that's the the poetry that flows from an awe of being taken up in the mystery. This is so mysterious. It fills us with a kind of awe from which poetry is evoked. That's one thing. Another thing, though, is just that poetic words represent this beauty of praise and worship. In, 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 the, in the Yoruba culture, in Yoruba, Yoruba people, they, they have something called an oriki. An oriki is someone just repeating words of almost praise because they're taken up by the awe of something. So, for example... Yoruba, Yoruba folks love twins, and they, w- twins are quite sacred almost to them. And so when they see, so twins have their own oriki. They have their own, these words that are spoken of in praise. So once you see twins, you, you, it's almost, it's effusive. It begins to flow out. The same thing almost is happening when the Bible is looking at God as creator. It's praise flowing out. It's worship flowing out. It's adoration flowing out. And so Moses writes to tell us, this is a God in whom we can find full sufficiency, the creator God. Israel were not to seek satisfaction in the creature. The things that were made are not worthy of worship. Only the creator is. He is the beneficent one. The sun doesn't come about by itself. God has to give it its light. And so he is the one that should be worshipped. He is the one that must be blessed. Interestingly, again, contrasting with the myths of Moses' day, is what I just mentioned about the great lights, the suns and the sun and the moon. In the myths surrounding Moses' day, very often, those lights would have been treated as competing gods. The stars would be worshipped. In Moses' narration of Genesis, the sun, the moon, and the stars are creatures that God makes. There's no rival God. Nothing competes with this God. Not the, not, not the, uh, not, not, not the, the, the lights, the great lights, the great galaxies, not the great animals, the great whales, uh, the, the great uh, sea creatures, which would have been idolized in those times. None of them compete with God. He is the true God. If we look at creation properly, what it points us to is knowledge of the true God, and it calls us to worship him. And who is this true God? The Bible tells us that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is not afraid to say in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the one through whom God made all of creation. As though Paul says in Colossians 1, It is pointless. It is pointless. In the end, it achieves nothing. 
for you to be amazed by creation, but not be amazed by Jesus Christ. It serves you nothing if you love the creation, but it doesn't lead you to love Jesus Christ. So in Colossians 1, Paul says, listen, Jesus made everything. As though Paul says, when you go back to, Jesus, to, to Genesis chapter 1, see Jesus in there. Jesus Christ is right there. He's the, he's the word that God speaks so that the light comes into, into the universe. He creates everything. And, then, and, and right alongside that, he says, but he's also the head of the church. He's, he's also the head of the church. And, and it's his blood that washes away your sin. And, and, and Paul is telling us, you can't really appreciate creation until you have known Jesus Christ and his blood that washes away your sin. You can't really be in awe of creation until you realize that the most awesome thing to ever happen in creation was that the creator took on human flesh and entered into his creation so that the only way to enjoy the goodness of creation is to trust him. Let me say this. That is true both before and after what we call the fall in the, in the, in the, in the Bible. So... We know that once we get to Genesis chapter 3, we start to read about how everything goes wrong. And creation is, is, is affected. And creation is now, uh, and creation is now if, if you want, almost in bondage. And this world is evil and so on and so forth. And so when Paul speaks about Jesus Christ in Colossians 1, Paul is saying, listen, the, what's the point of following creation that is heading towards destruction? You need to trust in Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can redeem us from creation. But when you realize that even before the fall, it was Jesus who made this creation, and that creation was always made for the glory of God, I want you to remember that at no point was creation ever meant to be an end in and of itself. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, what their lives would have been would be an eternity of knowing who Jesus is. That was always what creation was made for to tell us more about the glory of Jesus Christ. But of course, there has been a fall. And I think essentially what Paul says is, those who truly enjoy creation, those who truly know the creator, are only those, are those, who, only those who trust in Jesus Christ to reconcile them to God are those who realize that Jesus is greater than his creation. It's the only way to enjoy the goodness of God's creation, is to actually trust Jesus Christ. Because right now, this creation as it is, only bears vestiges of its former glory because of man's sin. A pandemic will show you that quite quickly, right? That this creation is not, there's no peace in it. There's no peace in creation. Creation is fallen, it's broken, it's falling apart. Paul says in Colossians 1, Jesus Christ brings us peace, though, by his blood that was shed on the cross. We look at the old creation so that we can learn to rejoice in the new. And the new creation is this, the Bible says. Not just the fact that one day God is going to give us a whole new earth where there'll be no pandemic and no sickness, not just that, but that even now, those who trust in Jesus Christ, they receive the same Holy Spirit that Genesis chapter 1 says was hovering over the face 
of the waters. That same Holy Spirit who brought order to this confused mass is the same Spirit that God gives to those who confess Jesus Christ as their Savior today. And if you're a Christian, this, this work of new creation has begun. If you're not a Christian, this is what Genesis 1 says to you. This chapter is a chapter you read when there was perfect order and harmony in God's universe. What does perfect order and harmony look like in God's universe? Fellowship between God and his creatures, especially man, who is the apex of creation. But harmony in God's universe looks like fellowship between God and his creation, all creation doing his bidding, all creation loving him and rejoicing in him. The only place where we see that today is in the church now, until we see the final consummation of Christ's return. And only, friends, only when a man trusts in Jesus Christ does he begin to taste that perfect order that exists when folks are in fellowship with God. That's order to your life, brothers and sisters, if you're in fellowship with God. Some of you thought you were thrown into confusion by those things you heard yesterday, thrown into confusion by the lockdown, thrown into confusion by a pandemic. This is order to be in perfect communion with your God. So Paul says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you. Some of you have seen your bodies falling apart, and you thought, there's no, there's no order here. Nothing beautiful to see here. Nothing beautiful to say it's good here. Because look at my body falling apart. You're still thinking about the old creation. But this is order. Now, this is beauty, brothers and sisters, if God's spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're his child. This is a creation that has begun every single bit as beautiful as the first one. That's why God is not very in a rush to give his people all the wealth in this present world. He's not in a rush to do that because he's given us all we need and more. The spirit has begun this work. And it might, meet, be to meet, it might mean then that the best way, the best way to rejoice in the work of the creator is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So in Colossians 1, after Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is the firstborn uh, of creation, and he's the one who created the first creation, and then speaks to us, about, he starts to speak about the new creation and about how uh, Jesus Christ, uh, his blood... Reconciles the church to God, and he starts to speak about this new creation. He, he closes by saying in verse 23 that through him, uh, through the church, the message of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed throughout the heavens, throughout the whole world. That, that, that's the best way uh, to, 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 to marvel at God's creation today, is actually to, to speak about the gospel. So, so, brothers and sisters, we should enjoy God's creation because God is good. But, but let's never forget that the best way to use God's gifts in creation is to seek the best ways to make Christ known. How can I make Christ known through whatever it is I love to enjoy as a, as a created being? How can I make him known? You will never sing a better song than the one that ends on a note of who Jesus is. Make Christ known. It doesn't matter. Don't ever make that kind of false dichotomy of a secular, sacred divide that thinks you can't bring Jesus into this, it doesn't exist for the believer. 
To, to not know Jesus in this sphere does not exist. And the best thing you can do with your creation is to make Christ known, is to use it in a way that glorifies Jesus. It's to enjoy creation in a way that glorifies Jesus. And it's to seek those opportunities to make Jesus known through the gifts he's given us, through sports, through entertainment, through all these things, all these gifts that we enjoy. How can I make him known? How can I reach? How can God use me in this situation to let that person know that Jesus lives? There's nothing greater than that. To know that Jesus lives. To know that Jesus saves from sin. So this is our creator. Uh, we were made to, uh, to, 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 to look upon all the good things he gives us, all the good gifts he gives us, and let us lead us back to him. Well, the second thing is that he's sovereign. The God of Genesis chapter 1 is a sovereign God. He's not like the gods of the other nations. Very often, the gods in those uh, Asian myths that Israel might have been familiar with were polytheistic gods. It's, it's, two, three gods, 10, 15, 20 gods, all trying to share a domain. So one god becomes the god of the sun, and one god becomes the god of this area, and that, not the god of, not the god of Genesis 1. He has no rival because he is sovereign. He is in absolute control of everything. Behold, the Lord our God is one. So we don't see him taking counsel with other gods beside himself. In the beginning, God created everything. He didn't have any conversation with other gods. He didn't have any conversation with rival divine beings. He had no conversation with uh, the, the spirit world. He just decided of his own free sovereign will to make a world for his glory. He is absolutely sovereign, unconstrained, unrestrained power. What he speaks comes to pass, and nothing can rival him. How did he make the world? He spoke it into being. It was simple as that. Perhaps the mystery of how God made the world is what keeps even scientists confused to this day about how to understand things like the age of the earth and how to understand how the world is what it is, because this is the work of the sovereign God. You always be lost until you recognize that, until you realize that this is a God who's sovereign. He, 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 didn't, he, didn't, have a, he didn't have a circle of, count of scientists before he decided to make the world he, 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 the way he made it. It was of his own free will. And, and as a sovereign, he also gave laws. He's a lawgiver. Everything has a law for it. The sun can only come out at a certain time, the moon at a certain time. The, the, the water has to stay somewhere, and, and the, the, the dry land has to stay somewhere. The fish have to leave, live somewhere, and, and the, uh, the birds have to live. You, you guys are only allowed to stay up there in the sky. He, he's, he's, he, he gives laws. He's lawgiver. He's sovereign. Adam and Eve, he's lawgiver. You multiply. He's lawgiver. He just gives laws to all of his creation. He's sovereign. He's a sovereign God. Everything is under his control. The light, the darkness, the winds, the waves, the birds, the fishes, everything under his sovereign control. Moses is saying to Israel, our God is sovereign. Israel, you exist as a nation because of his own sovereign will, his sovereign decision to do so. And so actually, what it means is, Israel, he's sovereign over the fall. Sometimes folks wonder, 
if God could have had anything to do with Genesis chapter 3 and how the world crumbles? Where, 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 could Satan somehow have, have snuck in? Impossible. He's sovereign. He was sovereign over that and sovereign over the choosing of Abraham, Israel. And he's sovereign of, over making sure that uh, Jacob's family head down to Egypt. And he's sovereign over the death of the good Pharaoh that results in the uh, arrival of the bad Pharaoh who hates you and persecutes you. He's sovereign over that. Same way he was sovereign over the appointment of Moses. Same way he was sovereign over ushering you into your promised land. Same way he's sovereign over the kings of Israel. Same way he's sovereign over the arrival of his son Jesus Christ to wash away our sins. And we see his sovereignty displayed at the cross. This Jesus, this, this God is sovereign. He, he, he does as he pleases. We have to kind of, we have to get in line with his agenda. We have to learn his ways. We, what is good is good because he says it's good. What is evil is evil because he says it's evil. He's sovereign. He's in absolute control. And we need to obey that. We need to fear that. We need to trust this sovereign God. Now, of course, for the believer, very often, this is a comforting. It's a comforting truth that God is sovereign. He's always in control, even when the bad things happen. He's in absolute control. Somehow... The, him allowing the bad to happen is going to lead to the very best possible thing. It's the best possible way to do this. Adam to fall into sin is the best possible way for him to speak to the world. Adam falling into sin is the most beautiful way for him to reveal himself. It's the most beautiful way for this story to pan out. He's sovereign. You just have to trust that, right? Your, 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 your afflictions, my brothers and sisters, your, your struggles, your temptations, the, the family that you were born into that you had absolutely no choice in, 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 in making, the, 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 the things that happened to you in, in, in your childhood that you had absolutely no control over, the, 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 the state of your mind now that you had no, you, you know it's things happening to you as opposed to things that you can control. But whenever out of control, he is in absolute control. What does that mean for the Christian? You trust him. You say, I, I, I don't like the pain that this brings me, but he has done it. He's done it. It's his way, and his way is good, and his way is wise, and his way I will trust. This God is sovereign. Nothing is happening by accident. Everything is happening, though, so that one day, there will be one united story about the goodness of this God as revealed in Jesus Christ. It's comfort for the believer, for the unbeliever. God is sovereign, and so he commands us to repent. Because he's sovereign, he's a lawgiver, and he can tell us what to do. Because he's sovereign, for example, the Bible says he has appointed a day when he will judge this whole world. Because he is sovereign, one day this earth will be destroyed. This beautiful creation he made, the same way he was sovereign and so he could call it into being, is the same way as sovereign he's going to call it out of being. And so our response has to be to listen to the lawgiver, to repent. 
when we proclaim the creator God, every, every time people think of creation, they just think it's, it's always something that's favorable to them. Yes, now it, God has blessed us with so much in creation, but actually he's also exposed our rebellion because we receive all these good things from him and we respond with sin. And so today he commands us, as a sovereign God, he commands you to repent. As sovereign God, he commands you to stop idolizing your desires. He commands you to stop indulging in creation in the ways that he has told you not to. He commands you to recognize the limits he places on your life to repent, to turn away from your sin, to turn to him, to trust in his son Jesus Christ, who he as a sovereign God bruised for your iniquity. As a sovereign God, he sent his son into the world to die for your sins. He commands you to repent. He commands you to repent. And I say this last thing. As sovereign God, one day he will bring every single one of us before his judgment throne. It doesn't matter how you feel about that. It doesn't matter whether you laugh about that. It doesn't matter whether you don't take it seriously. As a sovereign God, one day we'll all be summoned. We'll all stand before him, before the lawgiver. Those who haven't repented and trusted in Jesus Christ are rushed into damnation. Those who trust him receive eternal life. Let me close then by making some applications just for, uh, as we come to the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we see the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ. The body broken for us. The blood that was shed. But Paul's words in Colossians 1 remind us that the cross of Jesus Christ is not some private thing. It has cosmic proportions. So for Paul, when he's talking about the whole world, the whole of creation, he can can never separate that from the cross of Jesus Christ because all all of creation was made for Jesus Christ. And now, because of the fall... All of creation is going to tell the story about the God who shed his blood for his creation. So when we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that we are not simply engaging in some private thing. This table has cosmic proportions. It might not feel like it, right? The whole world is not fixated on the table. It's, 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 in fact, it's meaningless to so many to so many people. Why are these Christians here eating bread, drinking wine, and, and representing it as the body and blood of this? It seems so strange to folks. But actually, when we come to that table, the God of the universe is with us. This is a table of genuine cosmic proportions. This is a table uh, that has effects in all of the heavens and the earth. We have to believe that because of the God of the universe is here. And so two things, because of that, for the Apostle Paul, for example, this table had so much, it, it, it had such cosmic proportions that he could say to the Christians at Corinth, you can't eat at this table if you're also going to go out there and eat at the table of devils. So, so Paul basically says, don't think this is a private thing. I can eat the body of the blood of the blood and the, the body of Christ and, his, and drink His blood. I can I can do that here privately because it's, it's, this is the church. When I get out of the church, I'm somewhere else. 
I can eat what I want there because that's, you know. He says, no, 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 no. What you do here has cosmic proportions. What you do in this private setting, it might seem, has ramification for every single area of your life. And the Lord's table reminds us that, brothers and sisters, we cannot eat from God's table and eat from the table of devils. We can't eat from God's table and eat from the table of the sexually immoral. We cannot eat from God's table and eat from the table of drunkards. We can't eat from God's table and eat from the table of the greedy, the covetous, the fraudsters. Uh, we, we can't eat from God's table and eat from the table of those who oppress others. We cannot do that. The Bible says you examine yourself as you come to this table because what you do here matters for every single part of your life. And lastly, let me say, is there anyone who is discontented with their lot in creation this morning? You feel like you don't have enough. You're looking to your you're looking over at your neighbor's side of the fence, and your neighbor's not even a Christian, and you're envying them. You're envying their wealth. You're envying their relationships. You're envying something they have. You feel like God has not given you enough. Let me tell you this. Now, our God is a faithful God. He's merciful and he provides. But you will never be invited to a table as precious as the one you're about to be invited to. In fact, one time Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, he says, you have everything. Everything is yours. All things are yours. You should, if, you, if you sit at the table of Jesus Christ as one of his children, if you've been welcomed into the family of God, you should never envy. You should never feel like you don't have enough. You should always be content because you have everything in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, you might not have all you want of this creation right now. But as I said, by God giving you his Holy Spirit, he has begun this work of new creation in you. And one day, we will never ever lack anything on this side of the earth. Anything even physical, anything, anything material, we will never lack even that. But not just that, even now, there is enough in Jesus Christ for us to be fully satisfied. If we, if we come to this table this morning as discontented Christians, feeling like we don't have enough, feeling like we're always complaining about not having this or not having that. But brothers and sisters, we need to repent of that and remember just what we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, more than anything this creation could give us, we have fellowship, father-child father, fellowship. We have fellowship with the creator himself, the creator king. Amen.